Today, Mike Scott, consultant surgeon, is joining me to talk everything medical. He's a fascinating man. He has an opinion as well as being one of the top surgeons. We want to hear all about what he's got to say. We're crossing every subject. Listen now, sit back, enjoy the podcast with Mike Scott. Right, I join you um, and you join me tonight when we hear, first of all, about this heat wave. Now, I will say that I've never heard heat wave warnings in Spain, Turkey or any other country I've been to. When I grew up as a young lad, I've never heard about anything to do with warning that it's summer and it's going to be very hot. Am I wrong? Is there something to worry about? Well, you're quite right. And maybe it didn't get quite this hot or as hot as it's planned to get when you were a bit younger. Certainly when I was younger, um, I don't remember it getting quite this hot. But I, I take on board what you're saying about foreign countries. I think it's just that we live in a time when um, public health is paramount. And I feel that everybody has to be warned against every potential illness. Now, when we were younger, Peter, we didn't wear sun creams, did we? If you remember, we no. used to get burned, and that's not good. And, you know, we can talk about the whole effect on the skin of sunshine, if you like, at some point. But the reality is that people do die in heat waves. And whether you're in France, Greece, Italy, Spain, wherever, people do die in heat waves. And Usually it's the elderly, and usually it's people who have other, what we would call comorbidities, meaning other things wrong with them. So there are things that we can do to make sure that we're safe. And I'm not just talking from the sunshine now. I'm talking about from the general heat. So wear loose clothes, drink plenty of fluids. Okay, when we were younger, we didn't have to be told to walk 100 yards and stop and drink half a pint of water. But the reality of the situation is people do become dehydrated. And once you start to become dehydrated, then you're laying yourself open to getting really quite sick if the potential is there. So, yeah, I think it's a real issue. I think we're just more aware of our health now and the powers that be are more aware of making us aware, if that makes sense. It does indeed. It does indeed. We've got to talk about COVID. It's not gone away. It will never go away. It will be dealt with and it's being dealt with, but it is still a, a, a pain in our sides, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, Peter. But I, I remember talking to you on your show two and a half years ago, and I made a statement that said, in time, everybody will catch it. And I got a lot of criticism for saying that from a lot of quarters. Uh, you know, that I was scaremongering. I wasn't trying to scaremonger. And in fact, time has shown that it was true. I would say the majority of the population have probably had COVID, whether they know they have or, or, or they don't know they have because not everybody does tests. The difference is, Peter, that two and a half years ago, it was a lethal disease. Nobody was vaccinated. Nobody'd had it before. And people were very, very much at risk, particularly people with comorbidities. The situation now is, yep, it's dead easy to catch it because we're back out socializing. The difference is over 80% of the adult population are vaccinated. We've got herd immunity. And the virus itself has mutated such that 
it's not as a lethal disease anymore. Now, that doesn't mean to say people aren't ending up in hospital. It doesn't mean to say some people sadly don't die from it. And they're people usually who've got something else wrong. But it's nothing like the numbers that we saw two and a half years ago and in the second peak. Okay, the numbers are going up, but not the numbers of admissions and not really the numbers of deaths. So, yes, you're right, Peter. We have to learn to live with it. We have to learn to accept that it's there. Don't forget, though, that the, the common cold is a coronavirus. Now, COVID, you know, coronavirus as well. But the reality is the common cold has never gone away. Uh, and this is not going to go away. I don't want your listeners to think I'm trivializing it because I'm certainly not. And it, it was a very frightening disease two and a half years ago. Now it's an inconvenience and it's something that is going to be out there in the community. And we can only have to look at the way everything's relaxing, travel, socializing. Uh, thank goodness, because we can get on with our lives again. It, it is out there and it is having more of an indirect effect, I think. It's having an indirect effect because people may have an occupation that they're not allowed to go to work if they test positive. Um, they may, or there are occupations where people have to test and people who have no symptoms may suddenly find they have uh, a COVID positive and their work insists that they isolate. And that has an impact on services, particularly, I suppose, the health service, because yeah. in the health service, Obviously, you don't want to be exposing vulnerable people to the virus. And so it is going to impact, um, but it's in, impacting in an indirect way. Mike, I've got to ask, you mentioned the health service there. Um, in hospitals and um, well, hospitals, let's just stay with that. Are, are, are the staff test, tested all the time still? It's, well, it's voluntary. Um, and it, it's suggested that you're supposed to do it. I, I test myself, um, but some people can't get hold of the test. Some people don't want to test because they don't want to come to work. I, and it's it would be wrong to say that it, it's mandatory. Um, it's just advised that people test themselves. And I suppose the more responsible people do, and a lot of people don't. Wow. I think if you get symptoms then it, it, I think if you work in the health service, your manager, if you turned up at work with, you know, a rip-roaring cold and, or a sore throat or a cough, then your manager would probably send you to have a test. And um, But if, as you well know, a lot of people are testing positive who have no symptoms whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's that group that probably aren't getting tested within the health service. Are there many people off within the NHS who have got COVID? There are people regularly off, and, and you know that does impact on services to some extent. Um, it's perhaps not quite as bad as it was a few months ago, but there are. It does seem that certain services are under pressure. Um, you know, you need junior doctors to run, I'm talking about the hospital situation now, you need junior doctors to run wards. Hospitals wouldn't run without um, a level of staff of junior doctors and nurses. And of course, 
the, the ones who are working and not off because of being positive are put under a huge amount of pressure. And that pressure, that extra work pressure, tends to make people who may be unhappy more likely to not want to go to work. So there is a there is the the feeling that it's still having an effect within um, the health service. Yeah. I've got to ask, because um, I've recently had an MRI scan. I waited six weeks for the results, which I was a little bit nervous about. The reason I give that as an example is this catch-up time in hospitals and doctor's surgeries. Is this a sort of catch-up yeah. because we've had a pandemic? Yeah, I, well, I think it, it would be impossible just to put one answer to that. I think right. part of it is catch-up. But I do also think that certain hospitals and certain departments in certain hospitals are struggling more than others. So, for example, um, I know that in my hospital, the waiting time to get a report back for something like a CT or an MRI is less than a week. Um, but I do happen to know which type of MRI you had. And it may just have been in, that in the hospital where you had your test, there may have been a shortage of the people who needed the specialist um, right. skills to read your uh, particular MRI scan. And, and I, I think that you you did wait a long time. And, um, and I think that the hospital where you had it done must have been struggling right. um, to report. But I think some of it's catch up. Some of it is staff shortages. Um, some of it is that we have to perhaps look at working in a slightly different way with you know the pandemic has perhaps taught us that health has to be delivered in a slightly different way do you know i'm so you glad know? you said that because i wanted to come on to that because when i was talking to you you said there are big changes in the way we deal with health now and which is a great opening for you to come in yeah i i, I mean i think i think the pandemic i mean i think changes were happening anyway I think the pandemic has um, focused attention. For example, a lot of people will know that if you go to your GP, firstly, a lot of GP uh, practice work is done over the telephone. And you'll also know that a lot of maybe um, appointments are not necessarily with the doctor. They might be with a specialist nurse in the GP. Or indeed, some people now can go to a pharmacist and get medical advice from a pharmacy. I, th I think we have to accept that the health service is changing. It's not the way we were. it was when we were younger. Um, and I think some of it is very good and some of it is going to take time to adapt. But there is no doubt that the health service would collapse without some of those changes. But changes happen all the time, Peter. I mean, look at it. In, I'm obviously I'm a surgeon, and look at things that have changed over the forty odd years I've been a surgeon. We've got robots in the hospital now. All the hospitals on Merseyside have robots that help with surgery. Robots, Peter. You know, imagine it. If you said that to somebody thirty years ago, they'd think we were talking about, you know, space. Um, you know, Star Wars or yeah, something. Yeah, and yeah. and and. There's a lot of team working in hospitals now. Different specialties work together, um, which helps the patient. So 
there are changes, and some of the changes will be difficult for people to accept. But, but I think that the way that the health service is changing is ultimately for the betterment yeah. of our general health. If you just join me, I'm talking to Mike Scott, consultant surgeon. Uh, you mentioned robots. I've got to ask, were you sort of what when you first heard about them? Um, well, I've known about them for a while. I mean, I don't want you, your listeners to think, you know, we're talking about R2-D2 and that kind of robot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, they're they're, they're a, um, a natural progression of keyhole surgery. Ah, right. There are certain... Um, operations that lend themselves to it. But for example, what happens is, so like the robot we've got has six arms and each of those arms get attached to an instrument. And But the operating surgeon who, who works the arms um, sits at a console either in the corner of the theater or in some cases in a different room. And it, it's, it's like real space invaders for grown-ups, you know. Wow. It, and the accuracy of the surgery is phenomenal. Wow. And the instruments have um, worked like your own hands inside the abdomen, but in a minuscule way. So, I mean, it, it, they, they've been around for a while now, but they're being developed. They're getting, when I say they're getting cheaper, they're not cheap. You know, yeah, we're talking yeah, yeah. a couple of million pounds. But the reality is that, that the quality of surgery that you're able to deliver by using a robot, the robot doesn't really do the operation. You still need a human yeah, yeah. to work the robot. But, um, and, and it's not, and they can be used in all types of surgery, not just my general surgery. They're used in, in urology to take prostate glands out. Um, the, the gynecologists are using them. The uh, orthopedic surgeons are using them. And in America, people are almost demanding that their operations are performed using the robot, which sometimes is silly and a waste of money. But but the reality, that's just one area that's developing. And, and of course, they're not cheap. So when people look at the money being poured into the health service, that money is, is 40 years ago when all that there was in surgery were knives and stitches and scissors and whereas now the equipment we use is so yeah. expensive yeah. and so you can see why the, the health um, industry gobbles up so much money in absolutely absolutely now uh, did we hear on the news this week that a, a big problem in all hospitals is that you've got people in bed because there's nowhere to put them but, well um, now that doesn't impact on me directly right. I think it does impact well, it impacts on me indirectly, but I mean, the physicians, the medical doctors um, always struggle to move some of their chronically ill patients out of hospitals into the next level, if you like. So whether that's going home or going to a care home or going to temporary care homes. And I think, it, and it's always been a problem. Usually it's a problem in the winter. You know, you've heard of something called the winter pressures, but... Um, my understanding is that particularly on the medical wards, there is an issue. On the surgical wards, fortunately, the majority of surgical patients are usually able to start to consider going home, and so it doesn't impact quite as much. But yes, it is a problem, but it's not a new problem, Peter. Right. Uh, it's a problem that's been there 
for a long time and it's just been more accentuated i suppose because now we're coming out of covid and um and pe more people are coming through the hospital for other conditions for more elective conditions so it's probably putting some increased pressure on yeah. it. and of course don't forget a lot of care homes closed down during because they yeah, couldn't, because they couldn't staff, yeah. and that's an issue too now, uh, red flag warnings, we've still got to remember, haven't we, with cancer and heart trouble and everything, we've still got to remind ourselves there is a lot of illness out there. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because you know, Peter, that it's one of the soapboxes that I stand on this. Just because COVID's been here for the last two and a half years, it doesn't mean all the other diseases went away. And the reality now is people are dying because of COVID, not of, of, of COVID. And what I mean by that is people who couldn't get care or people who ignored their symptoms during COVID are now presenting with diseases that are more advanced than, than they should be. Yeah. Uh, and so we have to take responsibility for our bodies. And it's quite simple. And I know it's on the telly all the time and people perhaps get bored of it, but for example, if you bleed from anywhere that you're not supposed to bleed from at a time when you're not supposed to bleed even, then that's not good. And you need to get to see somebody. Now, I know what your listeners are saying. I can't get to see my GP. Yes, you can. You just have to be persistent. Even if you talk to your GP or the GP's nurse on the telephone, what you need to do is tell them those symptoms. And there is a thing called the two-week rule referral system. It's been there from long before COVID. And the reality is, if you've got any symptoms that your doctor or your doctor's nurse thinks could even possibly indicate that you might have cancer, you can be referred to your local hospital or to any hospital you wish for an investigation. It's called two-week rules. And it's really, really important that we get back to looking after ourselves and you know, listening to our bodies. And it's not just cancer. People with chest pain, people with you know, bad headaches, people who have vacant spells occasionally, all of those could indicate other diseases. So if we're going to get life health-wise back on track, we have to start taking our own responsibility and not ignoring symptoms. Yeah. Mike, okay, <laughs> we, could, we could talk about this all night. I want you to take your cap and gown off uh, for a moment before you leave I know you've been abroad uh, with your family I've got to ask what was it like in the airport coming back and going there uh, well I'll be honest we didn't have I, I've done a few trips this year both for work and socially we have had and we've obviously been very lucky we have had no problems and that's flying from Manchester from Liverpool my daughter, though, did fly in from Los Angeles last week. And, uh, and so after an 11-hour flight, it then took six hours before her luggage got unloaded. Six. Um, so six hours in the end. Um, that wasn't up here. That was in London. But, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sometimes, it's nothing to do with health directly. But again, it's one of those indirect knock-ons, isn't it? Because back to COVID, because people were let go now they happen to be trained nobody wants to do the jobs um so i must i count myself lucky and i've got a number of trips 
planned for later in the year to various parts of the world for work and social reasons. So I'm just keeping my fingers yeah. crossed as yeah. I end up being lucky on all of them. Last question. Where are we getting staff from? How short are we in hospitals? Um, well, we are getting staff. You know, I can only really talk um, for my hospital, but my hospital has a program to get nurses from other parts of the world, appropriately trained and qualified nurses, um, I just say. And you know that I've run a program at Wisdom for the last 10 years, bringing appropriately trained doctors in from uh, the Czech Republic. And they're not necessarily Czech doctors. They're doctors who've been trained in the yeah. Czech Republic. Yeah. And it saved our hospital millions of pounds in locums. So I think in my hospital, whilst it's still a struggle, we're, we're dealing with it as best we can. Mike Scott, love you as a guest. Always did. Take thank care. You, Peter. I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. And if you enjoyed that, why not listen in to our back catalogue? Subscribe. Guess what? It's completely free of charge. <laughs>